Okay, we should probably make sure you can hear me. Um, so, think. Cool. Um, so normally I'm back there, and that's things that I'm trying to pay attention to. And for some reason, I'm over here today. Um, it took an extra couple weeks for this to actually happen um, because of my migraines. Thank you for those who've been praying. Um, but I am here in part because I am currently exploring the possibility of pastoral ministry. I've been attending seminary online for about three years now um, and considering moving to Kansas City this summer to finish up on campus. Um, and in that, I took a preaching class last fall. Darren asked if I would like to preach during our psalm series. And so that far more than any of your prayers for healing or to figure out my medication situation, I'd really ask for prayer, for clarity and wisdom in that pursuit. Um, for now, this is my first Sunday morning sermon. I'm preaching from Psalm 37, as Josiah read. Thank you for reading all of that for me. Um, you guys are going to get tired of hearing my voice probably, so an extra few minutes of Josiah is good. Um, this is a psalm that's particularly special to me. Um, and when I was preparing this sermon, I was concerned that the toughest part about preaching that psalm that was so familiar is that I would catch myself preaching my own experience instead of preaching to you the text of the psalm. After all, my job this morning is to proclaim to you what God says from his word. But I very quickly got over that fear and realized that the greatest challenge is that although this psalm is encouraging and has hope, and that that's why I picked it, David calls us to consider some hard things in the process of going through that. To use the language of Psalm 23, where we were a few weeks ago, in order to reach the promised land of this psalm, we must go through the valley of the shadow of death. In today's psalm, David considers the reality that there are men who do evil, and they prosper at the expense of the righteous. The very first thing he says to us is, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Yes, evildoers. Not inconvenient traffic delays, not annoying people, nor your final exams. Evildoers. So today we are going to consider why David thinks that we do not need to fret over these evildoers and what we should do instead. A nice, easy topic for a first sermon. Two weeks ago when we had to change plans at the start of the weekend, Darren preached from Psalm 37 which covers a similar topic. There, Asaph talks about his personal experience of envy over prosperity of the wicked. Here, David will consider that, but he also speaks to the reality of evil. Whereas Psalm 73 reads like a poem, you may have heard that Psalm 37 sounds more like Proverbs. It is classified as a wisdom song. And there are a few reasons for that. First, Psalm 37 deals with contrasting lives of the righteous and the wicked and their outcomes. It's a common theme in the book of Proverbs. But it's also structured a little differently, this psalm. It's structured as an acrostic where each stanza starts with the successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And while there are themes that run throughout the psalm, there is no sort of linear argument being made or story being told. It sometimes just seems like a series of semi-random statements. But I do see order in this psalm. Verses 1 through 9 identify the main themes of the psalm, and the main points of the sermon will come from those. Do not fear, I'm not preaching all 40, ser- 40 verses and taking two hours. Then, so those nine verses are made up of commands, but then verses 10 through 33 
are a series of descriptive statements with one command sneaking in to tell us to turn away from evil and do good. But then, from verse 34 to the end, we get those initial commands, they come back, and the psalm concludes with them. So while I'm focusing on the first nine verses, the rest of the psalm supports those themes, which is why I asked Josiah to read the entirety for us. I'm going to read those first nine verses again in a moment, but as I do, I want you to see one more thing about how they're structured. These verses make up what is called a chiasm. It's a fancy literary way of saying that it's structured like a multi-layered sandwich. You may recall from way back last year um, when we saw a similar construction in Mark, and if you don't remember it, it's okay, it was last year. Um, When Jesus curses a fig tree, we come to this passage and we're like, what is going on with this fig tree? I don't understand. But Darren helped us see that the two halves of the fig tree story surround a narrative of Jesus going into the temple and cleansing it from money changers and those selling pigeons. And the two different stories help us interpret each other, but also, very importantly, we see that the central idea is the most important. Mark uses that structure frequently, but we also find it often in the Old Testament, particularly in the Psalms and other poetry. And so we have an example of that here, but with three layers. The outer layer, verses 1 and 2, is paired again with 7 and 9. In those verses, we have the command not to fret, along with the reasoning that the wicked will be brought to an end by God. Verse 3 is paired with 5 and 6, where we are commands to trust God. And right in the middle, what I'm saying is the most important part for us, is verse 4, a command to delight in the Lord. Three points of the sermon are those three commands, essentially, with each helping us to understand the others, but also driving to the opportunity and even the necessity of delight in God. So, verse 1 through 9, of David. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. He will Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Father, as I come to proclaim your word today, help us to worship in our hearts. Help us to hear you in worship. Help me to speak in worship to you this morning. Help us turn our hearts such that we would delight in you all our days. In Jesus' name, amen. So our first point is that we do not have to fret over evildoers. It's the first idea in the chiasm. It's the bread of our sandwich. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Right away, there is that hard command. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Followed by a second one. Be not envious of wrongdoers. And verse 7 then phrases it as, Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in the way, over the man who carries out evil devices. 
And in verse 8, we're even told to refrain from anger and forsake wrath because fretting ourselves leads only or tends only to evil. And those are indeed some weighty commands. And they also set the stage for the entire psalm. Knowing it is the pinnacle, and in many ways a much more pleasant idea, I think it's easy for us and tempting to move past those verses quickly to get to delight yourself in the Lord. But to fully understand what David means by delight in the Lord, we need to first consider these commands and the reasons David gives for them. They will fade like grass and wither like the green herb, and evildoers will be cut off. We do not need to fret because these evildoers will not last. But what does it actually mean to fret? I don't think it's an uncommon word, but it's not part of my day-to-day vocabulary. Consulting a dictionary, I learned that to fret can mean to be constantly or visibly worried or anxious, or to rub or chafe. It could also be used to describe the act of corroding something with acid. But if we go way back to Old English, it was used more specifically to mean to consume or to devour. And the Hebrew word even has the same root as the word for to anger or to burn. In that sense, the phrase fret yourself means to anger yourself or to rile yourself up in passion, possibly to the point that it is self-destructive. And from the text, we see this self-destructive aspect in verse 8, when David says that fretting oneself tends to evil. And I catch myself doing all this, this all the time. Even in the weeks I was preparing the sermon, I'd suddenly catch myself saying, why are you worrying about that thing? You're preaching a sermon on the text that says, fret not yourself. Is a passage that I need to recall over and over, particularly when I've just spent two or three days with a headache that controls what I can and can't do. I've been waiting for two weeks now for a decision on a medication that I have taken before that I know works. And in those moments when I've had this, I start doubting whether I could ever be a pastor who has the time to prep a sermon the first time on time or to care for people when they need something. And I know that that feeling of anxiety, that that weight that settles on you is something that is not unique to me. There are people in this room who have felt that too. But David goes further. The people he tells us not to fret over are evildoers. And just how evil are these people? Well, let's consider what David has said about them. In verse 12, he says that they plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at them. They are antagonistic towards those who are doing good. And they're the ones initiating the aggression. They draw the sword and bend the bow. But not just in war. Their targets are the poor. Their targets are the needy. They want to slay people simply because their way is upright and good. The wicked also watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. This could mean a simple ambush, as it seems to describe, but I think it also has in mind the idea of someone who is always watching you, always waiting for that moment when you slip up, when you make a mistake, and in that moment, he pounces to accuse you. Not only are the wicked violent, though, but they are thieves and robbers. They borrow, we see, 
with no intention of ever paying back. And then in verse 35, we see a wicked and ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree. But he passes, he's prosperous and he's growing. So David is not saying here in this psalm, hey, don't sweat the small stuff or don't make a mountain out of a molehill. Rather, what he is saying is when you can encounter this mountain of evil in front of you, treat it like a molehill. Worry about it. Worry about threats of death and oppression of wicked as if they are nothing more than minor inconveniences. And we see, when we see the wicked prospering off the work of the righteous, we shouldn't be envious of their prosperity either. And at this point, you may be with me and wondering, is David crazy? But he's not the only one that says things about this. This isn't the words of Jesus. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Or, from the passage Josiah read for us, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. If anything, Jesus' words here might sound crazier than David's. And yet, whether from the mouth of Jesus or the inspired word written down for us by David, this is what God himself says to us this morning. Coming back to Psalm 37, whether you tend toward anger or anxiety or envy when you see how the wicked live, David gives the same answer. He says that while the wicked may prosper for now, their fate looks much different. Remember, verse 2 said that they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. What else does David say about the outcome of the wicked in this psalm? He says that they will be cut off in verse 9, and that in just a little while they will be no more. Their day is coming. Those swords that we looked at, that were, they were going to use to bring down the poor and needy, God says they will be the means of the wicked's own destruction because the arms of the wicked will be broken. And that wicked, ruthless man who grew into a great tree 
he passes away. He was no more. Though David sought him, he could not be found. David's first solution to the problem of the wicked is to consider their end. From an eternal perspective, all their success and prosperity will come to ruin. But that is not all David says about how we should deal with the wicked. We can now move to the next layer in our sandwich and see that we can instead trust God. Look at verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Why does David follow the command not to fret over evildoers with this command to trust in the Lord? It is because in this command, like a doctor commanding his patient to take his medication, David is prescribing an antidote to our tendency to fret ourselves. So how does this antidote work? The command to trust in the Lord in verse 3 is followed up by three smaller commands. Do good, dwell in the land, and befriend faithfulness. Let's consider each of them. How do we do good? David, again, gives us some examples. Where the wicked borrow without repayment, the righteous are generous and they give. He also says to turn away from evil and do good. So shall you dwell forever, for the Lord loves justice. And finally, he says that the mouth of the righteous utters wisdom in his tongue speaks justice. Why? Because the law of his God is in his heart. And I can't help but notice that this is a rather short list of things to do compared to all the description that we get of the wicked. We're to be generous, speak well, and do that very broad category of being just, which we'll look at a little more later. All of these things, I think, the common thread is that they are trust in action. We can be generous because we trust that God will provide. We can choose to speak and live according to wisdom and justice because we can trust that he is the true judge. Charles Spurgeon explains it this way. Trust and do are words that go well together in the order that the Holy Spirit has placed them. We should have faith, and that faith should work. Trust in God leads us on to holy doing. We trust God for good and then do good. We do not sit still because we trust. Instead, we rouse ourselves and expect the Lord to look through us and by us. If we are trusting in God, we do not just sit and wait for him to act all the time. Our trust compels us to do good to others. But does trust always have to look like acting? Because David also says that we are to dwell in the land. Where doing good seems to be about trust in action, dwelling in the land seems to be about trust at rest. So again, what does David say about trusting and rest? He says that the righteous might have little, but that is far better than the abundance that is derived from wicked acts. Because the righteous will then not be ashamed. And even when there is famine... When they are in situations of need, they will not find themselves as beggars. The Lord will provide. And finally, he will grant them abundant peace. Whereas doing good is trust in action, dwelling in the land is trust at rest. When we trust God to provide for us, we can be confident that he will be faithful to us. We do not need to fret over an apparent lack of provision because we have true spiritual food in God. We do not need to envy the wealth of the wicked because we have riches in heaven. 
As Jesus said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Do you trust that God will provide you a dwelling place? Then we can trust that he will also provide everything else we need. Finally, we must consider befriending faithfulness. I don't think this is a third thing to do so much as a clarifying statement on how we are to trust in action and to trust at rest. It's a somewhat idiomatic Hebrew phrase that more literally means shepherd or cultivate faithfulness. Maybe allow faithfulness to grow within you. We should act and we should rest in ways that demonstrate faithfulness to God and to one another. I'd also take it to mean that many of those ways will be in the little things, particularly for those of you who are younger. Although this still applies to the rest of you, I'd encourage you all toward a life of faithfulness in small things. Our culture puts emphasis on big things. And we older people have this tendency to encourage teenagers and young adults to dream big and be the change you want to see in the world. And some of you may do big things by the world's standards or just even by the standards of American evangelical Christendom. I don't want you to discourage you from having big dreams for God's kingdom. But I also don't want us to lose sight of the fact that the commands of this psalm, while weighty, shine through most brightly in the day-to-day ordinary actions of our everyday life. And for those of you on the other end of life, do not be discouraged to look back and wonder what great things you did. If you can look back and see continuous faithfulness in the small things. To illustrate, I have recently begun training for a triathlon. Well, maybe. There are a few obstacles, like whether my knees will hold up for even a small amount of running, whether or not I will not have few enough headaches that I can get through that training. Also, the part where today I am more likely to perish while swimming half a mile than to finish it. So I'm training for some sort of endurance race with a goal to finish, and we'll pretend it's a triathlon for the moment at least. A sprint triathlon, that's a short triathlon, is a half-mile swim, 12 and a half miles on a bike, and then a 5K run. The name sprint is a bit misleading. And I don't tell you those distances to make it impressive. I tell you that so that you understand that I cannot just go out and do that tomorrow, even if I could swim half a mile. I have to train for it. And the most important thing that I am told a rookie triathlete can do is train consistently, day by day, doing workouts that match my current level of fitness. So it means I cannot just go out and work out at full effort every single day either. I also have to rest and recover my body. That's actually where your body gets stronger is during the period of rest after intense exercise. But I think sometimes we treat being a Christian like that, where we go as hard as we can all the time. We make resolutions that we're going to read this so much of the Bible or pray for this amount of time every day even though our previous experience is that we don't do that. I think it's good for us to spend time reading our Bibles and praying every day, but if that means starting with five minutes a day, because that's what you know you can do, that's going to be faithful with your time and abilities right now. 
But more than just our private devotions, David tells us to be faithful in being generous. That could be with our money, but I'd suggest it also means we be generous with our time. Who in your life is facing an ongoing challenge and could use a little more time from a friend? Or we heard about needs from Love, Inc. and the Crisis Pregnancy Center, or the Cleveland Pregnancy Center this morning. And it's good that we go and meet those needs, but how can we also be faithfully helping out organizations like those on an ongoing basis when it's just ordinary needs? After all, we are told that to be great in the kingdom of God, we must be servants. And what do good servants do? They serve others faithfully, little by little, day by day. So this is our command to trust. But how does it connect back to not fretting? Look at verses 5 and 6 again. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act he will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. You may have been asking yourself, if I'm not supposed to fret over evildoers, well, what about justice for the evil? I mean, it is evil after all. And that's a good question. We've partially answered it in the idea that God promises final justice. But I think we need this verse too. Part of doing good is demonstrating justice to those around us. But there is a difference between fretting over evil, an act that can be self-destructive that does, because it doesn't trust God, and acting against evil. When and where you have the opportunity to oppose evil, do so. But we also have to trust in the Lord when we do. And this command also comes with a promise. Trust in him, and he will act. How will God act? He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. The force of that promise is not just that God will unveil some previously hidden justice within us, but rather that he will create righteousness and justice within us when we're committed to him. And not just a little bit, it will shine like the noonday sun. The antidote to our fretting is to trust in God and in so doing, we turn from an inward focus to a Godward focus. Instead of worrying about evil, we can either attempt to do something against it, or we can rest in the knowledge that God will act in his time and in his way. But we are not simply left with commands to not to fret and to trust God by doing good and being just. We still have the central layer of our sandwich to consider. And it is simply this, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. This is a command that, much like our first one is, fret not yourself, is reflexive. It is a command that is directed towards the self. But unlike the command, that one, this one is stated positively. Do not fret yourself. Do delight yourself. But that is not the only way it is different. It is also directed outward. We are called not to just delight in whatever, but we are called specifically to delight in our God. Let's consider why we should delight in God and then how this command relates to our other commands not to fret and to trust. To start, David says that we, if we delight in the Lord, we will get the desires of our heart. And on the surface, that sounds wonderful, doesn't it? 
If I had to guess, if there was only one verse that you knew from this psalm before you entered the room this morning, it was this one. We stick it on coffee mugs, and we write it in cards that we give to young people while telling them to dream big. We treat it as if we can have a desire for something, come to church on Sunday and fill our hearts with gladness towards God, and then we expect him to deliver on whatever we desired. But given that this command comes in the context of the prosperity of the wicked, I think that might miss David's point a little bit. What is it that you actually delight in? Is it not the things that you desire? If you desire to be married, then aren't you going to be delighted when you start dating a potential spouse and be dismayed by a breakup? If you desire good health, aren't you delighted with a good checkup and dismayed with bad news? And those are generally good and right reactions. But I think it also says something about our delight in the Lord. If we are desiring him, we will be delighted when we have more of him. And so if our desires aren't oriented toward him, then we are not going to truly delight in him either. I also don't think that this command is simply about our emotional state. If you flip a few pages further in your Bible to Psalm 42, you'll find another Psalm by David. But this time, David's in despair. And yet, in that despair, in those hard emotions, he's displaying a trust in God, a sort of delight. So rather, the command to delight is about the direction of our desires, I think. So what do you desire? Maybe even something that you'd describe as good that gets in your way of delighting in God. Here's a relevant example. I hear there is some sort of big sporting event tonight. Um, I am personally going to be more focused on providing judgment over soups, hopefully, assuming I have recovered from this. Um, But I know many people get very excited about sporting events, and I do too, Um, just not this one. Um, So, But does your desire for the Philadelphia Eagles or your desire for the Kansas City Chiefs to win this game in any way interfere with your delight in God? Okay, maybe not. Those are other faraway cities. What if one of those teams was the Cleveland Browns? (laughs) I didn't say it. Or maybe you're not a sports person. Do you desire rest for your body and mind after a taxing day, and so you watch a movie? That might not be too bad. It's good to relax and recover. But do you, like me, make a habit of finding ways to relax that subtly redirect your delight from God to your own comfort? I often desire good things like books and sports and not having a headache, but those pale beside the goodness of God. So why should we delight and desire God? I think that's actually an important question that we ask too. We're told to do it, but... And as Christians, we kind of just say, oh yeah, of course we should do that. Here's what David says about it. First off, he's delightful. Okay, maybe that's cheating. While the list of things the righteous are called to do in this psalm is relatively short, the list of benefits they receive is not. In fact, while most of the comparisons are between the wicked and the righteous, the actions are actually mostly done by either the wicked or they are done by God. Just in this psalm, 
These are the things that God does. In 5 and 6, we already saw he produces righteousness and justice in those who trust him. In verse 13, he laughs at the wicked, for he sees that the wicked's one day is coming. God upholds the righteous, and he knows the days of the blameless. If you are his, he knows you, and he loves you. God gives blessings to the righteous and cursing to the wicked. He also establishes the steps of a man. And he does this in such a way that even if you stumble a bit, it is the Lord who will raise you back up. The Lord loves justice, and he promises not to forsake his saints. He does not abandon the righteousness to the power of the wicked. That person that I talked about who's out to get you, always watching for a mistake, that's the person God will not abandon you to. And finally, God provides salvation and deliverance. That list is just the things that David explicitly says about God. I didn't even include some implied things in that psalm, such as cutting off the wicked, providing the righteous with food and famines, and giving them a land to dwell in. Reading through that, I find that not only do I hear a command to delight in God, but the opportunity and desire to delight in Him. We aren't just called to delight in God. We get to delight in God. Let's consider further the end of this psalm. Here's what David says, starting in verse 37. Mark the blameless and behold the upright. For there is a future for the man of peace. But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. David knew that. But we know how that salvation has been accomplished. Because even though we know we should not fret and we should trust in God and we should even want to delight in God, we know that sometimes we do fret, we don't trust, and sometimes we delight in lesser things. We don't just need salvation from the wicked. We need salvation from ourselves. We need Jesus because Jesus did not fret over evildoers, because Jesus trusted in his Father, because Jesus delighted in his Father, and then because Jesus took the penalty of death that we deserved. Because of that, through faith in Jesus, God become man. We can receive the promises of the righteous. Why should we delight in the Lord? Because he has provided our salvation. Several years ago, to connect this with justice, I heard John Piper give this illustration. He said that all sin is either dealt with by punishment in hell or is placed upon Jesus. And that we can't improve on either one of those. If you are a Christian, you can delight in God because he has saved you and called you his child. You don't need to fret over evildoers because you can't improve on God's justice. And that's what I want us to hear today. Not simply, do not fret, 
we can try in our own power to stop fretting and still feel empty. Or we can set our eyes on Jesus, seeking first his kingdom, and find that he is changing our hearts so that we have less to fret about. And that sounds delightful to me. I want to close by sharing a story. I told you at the beginning of the sermon that this psalm has particular meaning to me. Twenty years ago this April, as a freshman in college, I spent a day fretting myself over a situation that, without any input from me, completely resolved itself that same day. And it also happened on the day that I finished my schoolwork early, and so I had nothing to do in the evening. I went to a meeting of one of the Christian fellowships on campus. I had been attending a different group um, that met on a different day regularly since January, and this was my second visit to this group. Um, An elder at a local church came, and he shared from this psalm. And I heard these words, which will sound a little different because it's the NIV. Do not fret because of evil men, or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. And I realized in that moment that that was me. I was that person who was fretting over something, and it wasn't even evil. But there was a different alternative held out there. I could trust God in a way I never had before. David calls us to trust and delight in God when faced with evil because our God reigns, and he is in control even when it doesn't appear that way. On the surface, he is worthy of our delight. I'm going to read Charles Spurgeon's thoughts on verse 4. I'll pray, and then we will resume worshiping God in song. Charles says, The light in God has a transforming power. It lifts a person above the gross desires of our fallen nature. Delight in the Lord is not only sweet in itself, but it sweetens the whole soul until the longings of the heart become such that the Lord can safely promise to fulfill them. Is that not a grand delight that molds our desires until they are like the desires of God? Our foolish way is to desire and then set to work to accomplish what we desire. We do not go to work in God's way, which is to seek him first and then expect all things to be added to us. If we let our heart be filled with God until it runs over with the light, then the Lord himself will take care that we will not lack any good thing. It is better to be content with God alone than to go around fretting and pining for the paltry trifles of time and sense. For a while, we may have disappointments, but if these bring us nearer to the Lord, they are things to be greatly prized. For in the end, they will secure for us the fulfillment of all our right desires. Father, I pray for my church family this morning. I pray that you would help us in wherever we are, whatever evil or not quite evil circumstances we find ourselves facing, that we would trust in you because we are able to delight in you. Father, I pray that you would take all the good things in our lives, you would bless those, and that you would do us good but more importantly, that you would shape our hearts such that we desire you and trust you as we do good with whatever outcome comes. 
Father, I pray that you are with us as we continue to worship. I pray also for momentum that you would give them hearts to hear you as well and for our time tonight as a group. Just grace and blessing and help us feel your love. In Jesus' name, amen.